Hi, everyone, and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Julia Raymond Hare. And if you've tuned in before, welcome back. And if you're new, this is a show where we cover hot topics from news and trends happening in the best industry. You guessed it, retail. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Rethink underscore retail on LinkedIn and many more. You can find links to our social handles on the bottom of our website homepage. That's at Rethink.Industries or if it's easier to remember, RethinkRetail.org. If you're keeping up with the buzz and now on Clubhouse, it would be swell to connect with you on there. My handle is at Julia R. Hair. That's R like retail and hair like the rabbit. Two quick announcements and then we'll dive right into today's discussion. First, we put together a new offering of thought leadership services to help retail solution providers make an impact in this space. Email us at media at rethink.industries to find out more. And second, most exciting bit of news, we at Rethink Retail released our top 100 list of retail influencers last week. You can find the list on our website, so please go check it out to see who made the cut, and congratulations again to each of our award recipients. All right, let's dive in. Today, we are joined by my guest, Henry Trix. You may know Henry from The Economist, where he's been covering global business, finance, capital markets, and energy and commodities since 2007. Prior to joining The Economist, Henry wrote for the Financial Times in London and was their bureau chief in Mexico and worked for Reuters in America, Mexico, and Central America. Thank you so much for joining the show today, Henry. I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Thanks very much for having me. Today, you and I will be discussing The Economist special report on the future of shopping. It's called The Retail Renaissance, and Rethink Retail enjoyed a wonderful preview before it was officially released last Thursday meaning it's available now, and I highly encourage you to download it in addition to this conversation. Henry, back to you. Can you give us an overview of what we'll unpack in this Retail Renaissance report? Yeah, of course. I mean, the report is called Retail Renaissance, and uh, I guess it goes back to the Middle Ages. And if you don't mind, maybe I can begin by giving you a bit of a sweep of history to try and understand why shopping is today where it's at now. The reason why I started in the Middle Ages is basically because that was a time when shopping was very much one-to-one. You know, if you were a knight and you wanted a, a suit of armor, you would go to your blacksmith or your armorer and you'd say, you know, fit me up with my suit of armor, please. And the craftsmen would do that for you. There weren't middlemen. There wasn't a kind of equivalent of a shopping center for suits of armor. It was a very one-on-one relationship. And that lasted for a while. But over basically the last 500, four or 500 years, shops have emerged. And these shops basically have been ways of wholesaling those goods, right? So bringing lots of different goods together and selling them to people. So less one-on-one and more an array of things that are being sold to people. So then we get to the industrial revolution, which is where shopping as we, you know, as we've known it for the last 150 years started. So what you basically had was a factory system. Um, The emergence of mass production in which goods were produced in factories. The workers there were getting salaries for the first time. And with those salaries, they wanted to shop. And so you had the beginning 
of not just mass production, but also mass consumption, an advertising blitz that was aimed at the masses and a kind of retail environment, an array of shops and supermarkets and department stores and whatever that was all there to distribute goods to the shopper. But this was supposedly the consumer society, the age of consumer, call it what you will. At the end of the day, the shopper did a lot of the hard work. You know, we were forced to take, well, we weren't forced, but we were encouraged to take the goods that were advertised to us. We were the ones who had to drive or walk to the store. We had to carry our own bags. We had to search the aisles. We had to bring that stuff home with us. And so to a certain extent, it was a system in which the producer and the retailer, through advertising, pushed goods at the consumer. The way I describe it now within this renaissance that I'm talking about is as a kind of a consumer pull. The fact that we now have the internet on which to shop and we have the emergence of a digital shopping experience, online shopping, has widened the choice and given much more power back to the consumer to decide what we're going to buy. And not just what we're going to buy, but where we're going to buy and how we're going to buy. Are we going to buy on Amazon? Are we going to buy direct to the consumer on individual websites? And so this has thrown up huge new challenges to the retail industry. And these challenges will continue to grow, I think, because first of all, it means that the retailers themselves have to put more emphasis on basically supplying to us how we want it, not how they want it. That means that they'll have to sell to us through stores, through online, that they might have to pay for delivery to us, you know, all these kind of things. So the burden on retailers has grown. And in a sense, the consumer has become much more central to the whole operation, uh, more so at least than we were in the past. That's in a nutshell, the report. And of course, there's one other aspect to it, which is absolutely central, which is the way that the consumer has evolved geographically for at least for decades. The consumer has been basically American and, and European. The one driving the retail revolution has been typically American, I would say, you know, even in Europe, we get more American goods and our advertising is very American style. So it's been led, really, it's been an American-led consumer system. That is now moving to Asia. Um, and we can discuss this more. But yes, the shopping experience of the futurism is as much about Asia as it is about America. And it's incredible, Henry, how you outlined from almost the beginning of time, how did commerce evolve to what it is today? And I, I wanted to ask, you know, the old relationship between mass production and mass consumption, are you suggesting that that's being turned upside down, that that's going back to the roots of one-to-one -one consumption? Yes, I think one-to-one -one is a good kind of handle, if you like, for this shopping revolution. And that is basically because the internet and online shopping and our data trail, the amount of data that we're putting out, is basically making it easier for producers and retailers to know 
exactly what it is that we want and to craft a more individualized shopping experience for us. And I'll tell you a little anecdote here that really brought this home to me. So I, I was talking to Nike and I'd been reading Phil Knight's book, Shoe Dog, which is about the birth of Nike and the struggles that that company went through basically to succeed. And at the very beginning, they were literally going to track meets and whatever and finding their customers one runner at a time in order to put their trainers on them. And when I told this to one of the Nike executives, I said, you know, this was it was really a kind of time when each individual customer mattered. And she told me, you know, she said, Henry, just telling me that story gives me goosebumps because that's exactly what we're trying to recreate. We're trying to recreate the one-to-one experience in which basically we have a relationship with every single one of our consumers. And that can be through the store, obviously, but it can also be through apps. If you take Nike again, you know, they have all these running apps and stuff that we sign up to, and they they know as a result much more about what they're doing. And they're able to kind of tailor their products more towards us. So yes, in a sense, it's a more intimate experience. And it puts a lot of pressure, I think, on the traditional retailers to rethink very much this idea that they can sell to us en masse. And they'll have to become much more focused on how to serve us in a way that we take as being a personalized approach. Great word about rethinking how they're approaching customers. And what would you say is the impact on marketing in a traditional sense today to five years from now? Yeah, it's been one of the fascinating evolutions, I guess, over the last 20 years is to see how the use of personalized ads and data trackers and other ways of marketing via the internet have really transformed the way goods are advertised and presented to us. So I think that certainly marketing has become more about the feel of a thing, what it represents, as well as the thing itself, because marketers are more aware of the fact that our identities are shaped by what we buy. So we want things that fit with our identities, whether that's an identity as someone who's concerned about climate change or veganism or guns or whatever. You know, we have identities that are reflected in what we buy. So marketers are getting much cleverer at identifying those because they have much more data on what we, the consumer, is. I mean, there's obviously also the question about how much we want our data to be tracked and how much we want to be bombarded by ads as we go on our social media and whatever. But it's interesting to see right now how Apple through iOS and Google through Android is beginning to explore the possibility of turning some of these data trackers off, or at least giving us the option to turn some of these data trackers off. So marketers also have the challenge now 
of trying to work out how they reach us without necessarily being able to follow our every move on Facebook. Mm -hmm. And Henry, you talked a little bit about Nike. You said you were reading the book that they put out called Shoe Dog. And then you were also talking a little bit about your conversations directly with Nike. And my question to you is, the report mentions the middleman being squeezed out and Do you think that Nike's move to pull away from the Amazon channel is something that other brands can follow? Or is that reflective of Nike's brand value and the fact that they do have such a cult following? It's a great question because, I mean, it obviously helps having already acquired your customer. One of the things that I found as I was doing the report talking to some other companies like Nike. I mean, I spoke, for example, to the boss of Allbirds that make the woolly shoes. He was interesting. He was actually very pessimistic Mm. um, about aspects of retail because he was saying that for small companies, it's getting harder and harder basically to get your message out because it costs more to do that on Facebook or it costs more to do that on Google. And so the deck is stacked, if you like, towards the big players. Mm. But I'm not sure if I fully buy that. I certainly do think, I mean, I spoke, for example, to Sara, the Spanish retailing clothing retailer, and they've made a huge success about selling directly to consumers. But that's basically because they're already an incredibly well-known brand. Then again, if you talk to Shopify, which has clearly built a business about trying to provide a platform for those that don't want to go onto Amazon, they're incredibly bullish about the opportunity of even very small direct-to-consumer or D2C brands getting their message across, acquiring customers, and then retaining them. They have this lovely statistic that every 28 seconds, a new retail on Shopify. That suggests that there is a tremendous effervescence. I mean, how many of those actually go on to make a sale in a year's time? You know, there might be a lot of companies that get started but don't succeed longer term. That said, I just think it's great to think that there is the possibility of quite an effervescent and innovative retail sector out there, really small brands with really great ideas that are finding new ways of basically getting to us, because the big challenge is for us to discover them, right? That's what we used to do when we browsed through the supermarket or through the department store. Now, somehow they have to get to us through this uh, massive universe of social media and whatever else that we're looking at. That's huge. Discovery and expertise, two of the biggest things shoppers go in-store for. If you don't know what you want just yet, Amazon probably isn't the place to search. And that brings me to another point, because Amazon and Alibaba have really been running the e-commerce gauntlet, but you say that there's another player to look out for, and that's China's Pinduoduo, aka PDD. Can you tell us a little bit about more, and can we jump a little bit into the discussion around Asia and how that is impacting trends across Europe and the Americas? Yeah, PDD is absolutely fascinating, and it's fascinating 
both from a Chinese perspective, but it's also fascinating for us here in the West. And the reason for that is because it shows that there is no such thing as a guaranteed winner in e-commerce. So China was an e-commerce duopoly. And, you know, it was a two-horse race, basically. Everyone knew it was either going to be Alibaba or it was going to be JD.com. Mm-hmm. And Pinduoduo only started in 2015. So that's less than six years ago. And they started off as this kind of strange e-commerce platform that operated mostly in the grocery space and mostly in the provinces, in, in sort of rural China. But what they did was they came up with this idea of group buying, which was basically like if you can get a group of your friends or your fellow villagers or whatever together online, you can actually, almost like purchasing wholesale rather than retail, you can actually convince producers to sell stuff to you cheaper because for the producer, they get a bulk purchase. So this is what happened. It's called community group buy. It started off very much under the radar. Now, PDD, so remember, this is only five years old. It's worth more than $200 billion. It's listed in New York. This year, it's expected that its number of users may even eclipse Alibaba. It's not as big as Alibaba, but it's certainly in terms of numbers of users, it's growing incredibly fast. And not just that, but it's also, yeah, it's basically caused Alibaba and JD to realize that there's a whole load of territory out there that they hadn't even been thinking about, which is the sort of the rural hinterland of China, where, you know, you got to remember there's also hundreds of millions of people, albeit people with less income maybe than in Beijing or Shanghai, but a lot of people. So everyone has started to go deeper into China with more offerings. And it gives me hope, I think, that there is no such thing as a one-horse race or even a two-horse race in e-commerce. We in the West, we're very used to sort of thinking, okay, well, this has been won by Amazon. But I guess the story of Pinduoduo is that it opens the possibility that within five years, there may be a completely different company that with a different business model and a different approach that sort of brings in new competition and new excitement. And that's the thing that sort of attracts me about the Chinese market is just the level of innovation that there is there and the sort of the level of fun, you know. So, you know, in the last year, one of the things that's just gone bonkers in China is like live streaming. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm sure you've you've covered it, but it, it's it's fun to watch. You know, I mean, it's a bit crazy, and it's over it's the crazy. Top. And Henry, I wanted to just say, like, hearing you speak about what's happening in China and with PDD, it immediately connected the dots for me because you know we're all inundated constantly with things online, and I know that. In passing, I've seen live streaming where they're showing vegetables and and agricultural goods. And I thought, wow, that's odd. And now it makes sense that that was probably through the PDD platform. Yes, that's that's right. In fact, (laughs) PDD told me about a program that they've been involved in, which is basically they put some strawberry farmers 
against a team of people backed by artificial intelligence to see who could create the sweetest strawberries. Mm. Um, you know, that's the sort of thing where you, you kind of feel like this is really cool retail. Sadly, the AI won. I really wanted the veteran strawberry farmers to beat the AI, but they didn't. Ah, oh, man. Um, so, yeah, it's it, there's there's lots of there's lots of innovation there, and I guess it's fair to say that it's not just in China either. It's certainly led by China, but across Southeast Asia, you have to remember as well the importance of smartphones, right? So, I don't know about you. I mean, I still shop online on my PC. And uh, I'm hoping that you're much more switched on and and, and young and uh, kind of tech savvy than me. <laughs> oh, I use all the above. I Sometimes I'm on desktop. Sometimes it's phone. Yeah, definitely switch. Great. Well, the thing about smartphones is that basically what does that mean? It means that you've got a shop in your pocket and you can use it for all sorts of different things in China and in Asia, in India, even, you know, clearly the smartphone is going to be the main gateway for shopping. So that's something too that in the West we have to really start thinking about is how do we create a shopping experience on our phone? And that this is why you see companies like TikTok, Snapchat and uh, Instagram or whatever, all putting buy features on their channels because they realize that we'll be shopping on our phones pretty soon. Mm -hmm. It's hard to keep up with. There's a lot that goes into it. The report certainly touched on all of these things, especially personalization. The report also found rising prominence in a lesser-known model called Consumer to Manufacture. Henry, can you tell us a little bit about C2M and how is it different from direct-to-consumer? Yes, Consumer to Manufacture is something that, again, has been kind of pioneered in China. We can see echoes of it here. Funnily enough, PDD, again, is one of the pioneers of this. The idea is basically that a platform, whether it's like Alibaba or PDD, it can see what people are looking for. So a good example of this is in the early days of the pandemic in China in like January and February of last year, Alibaba realized that many people on its platform were looking for handheld sprays to put in their cars. So that, you know, whenever anyone got in their car, they could spray the steering wheel and whatever. And that, that, that just didn't exist. But the searches existed. So they went to a company that manufactured products for the inside of a car. And they basically said to them, look, you know, if you switch and within a couple of days you start manufacturing this, we can tell you that you will have X amount of customers right there on the first day that you produce this. And so within two weeks, they'd managed to basically get companies to start mass producing this stuff and shipping it directly to the people who'd been looking for it. That's consumer to manufacture. In a sense, we were talking earlier about the way that mass production led to mass consumption. In this sense, it's like consumption pulling along production. You know, as I say, there's sort of echoes of it here in the sense that, I mean, to go back to Nike, which I mentioned earlier. So Nike were telling me that they noticed during the pandemic or even before the pandemic that there was a rise in the number of people who were doing yoga rather than, say, going out running. 
So that enabled them to think, okay, what we need to do is we need to really switch towards producing more yoga gear. So I think we'll see more of this, this data trail that we leave behind, which basically shows our preferences in everything we do, will become much more meaningful towards manu- to manufacturers in terms of telling them what to produce. And also they know what kind of income level we are right? They know whether we've got lots of money or whether we don't have any money or whatever. So if they see that people who don't have a lot of money are looking for things that are particularly costly, then they can start thinking about how to produce much more frugal versions of these things. So in China, for example, PDD started to produce robot vacuum cleaners that would you know, clean your house without you having to push them around at a fraction of the price that you would pay for them in Shanghai or Beijing. And that, that I think, is really fascinating. That is fascinating. And I, I would love, yeah, I would love to have a nice Roomba, discounted Roomba. <laughs> they are, they're very expensive. As I reflect on what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense because when brands like Nike are able to flip quickly and respond to consumers' needs because they see that they're searching for these things, they can tell because they're searching directly with Nike but then also on other platforms and, you know, through lookalike models and all all of the data side of things. But that really is where Amazon still and Alibaba still has a big upper hand because they can see mass searches where people are looking for things with intent. And I think that's the biggest challenge, right, for brands that are trying to compete with people like Amazon and Alibaba. Yeah, I think that's right. But again, I am sort of slightly optimistic that the giants that won't have it all their way. And the reason for that is because I think that you're already seeing evidence that other tech giants, and even not necessarily the giants, but other tech firms are moving into having multiple channels where they can have more lateral vision, if you like, of what people want. Obviously, the Chinese service that everyone talks about is WeChat, right, which is the super app that is able to see across everything that you do on your phone, you know, so it's, uh, you know, you're ride hailing, you're looking at entertainment, you're shopping, you're using finance, that sort of thing. I think that it's possible that we'll see more of that kind of super app emerging here. I, you know, if you think of Facebook, and Facebook's got Instagram, it's got WhatsApp, it doesn't seem a huge stretch to think that pretty soon Facebook could be rivaling Amazon in terms of at least knowing what we want. You know, and then it's if it develops its own shopping service, then why shouldn't it eventually be able to compete? I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't. I, I don't could buy into it. it. I could buy into it definitely, especially with the the services they've been rolling out on Instagram. I could definitely see how that could happen. So you think there'll be somewhat of a consolidation of apps? Yes, I think I do. I mean, it's it's not fashionable particularly to say so. I mean, I've talked to Amazon about this in the past. I've talked to Facebook too. And, you know, there's a sort of sense there that I think it's a slightly snooty sense. Things in China, we don't need to copy what they're doing in China over here. You know, we do things our own way over here. I feel like there's a lot to learn from China 
And these guys should be looking more closely at what's going on over there because, you know, there's no reason why it shouldn't come over here. I would agree with the latter. As we close up this amazing conversation, I wanted to ask in a broad sense, are there any things that are on your mind in terms of what we'll see in the future, like society changes because of how retail is changing? Thanks for asking that question. I I think that it's a very significant one. I mean, the consumer has been such a powerful force, in a sense, in our society, from the point of view of driving the economy, shaping politics, but also just like a geography, you know? I mean, it's like the growth of suburban shopping centers and downtown department stores and all that kind of thing. So I do feel as though we need to follow the consumer in order to get a sense of how society will evolve. And of course, there's a lot of concern at the moment, for example, about jobs, right? And very real worries that, you know, many retail jobs, particularly the low-skilled retail jobs, you know, the job of ringing up a till is actually, I think, going to become much less significant in the future, because so many more transactions will be done online. The question for retailers is basically will be, what can you provide shoppers to get them to come into stores if they're able to transact online? And in order to do that, you have to basically provide them with more experience, more entertainment. And for that, I think you'll need a shopper system that does a different job. As someone put it to me, it used to be kind of like showing the customer where the pasta was, on what aisle the pasta was, right? And now it'll be telling the customer how to prepare the best type of pasta carbonara or something like that, right? So there will be a challenge there to change the workforce. There's also a really interesting kind of part of this which relates to property and that is you know i mean think about all of the physical retail that there is right especially in america it's hugely more than anywhere else on a per person basis so all of these shopping malls and whatever what what's going to happen to them and as someone put it to me it used to be that you had to have a really big tenant in there, you know, the anchor tenant, the Brooks Brothers or whatever it was, that was going to basically enable bankers to lend you enough money to build that that center. But now it's not so much having the bankable retailer, it's having the cool retailer. Who really attracts the kids? Mm-hmm. That's the question. There are definitely some retail property companies that are thinking about how to change the nature of the store and to create places with more pop-ups and, you know, a more kind of ephemeral type of store where, you know, people come in for three months and then go or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. I think it's going to be really exciting to see in the future. 
both great points. And I love how you talked about, you know, taking it a step further, offering experience, not just where to find the pasta, but how to cook the best cabanera and all of the things you talked about having the coolest retailer, not the biggest retailer as anchor tenants and things like that. So excellent conversation. Thank you so much, Henry Tricks from The Economist. And Henry, where can our listeners go to find the report that you guys just released? If you go to economist.com, you look for a special report called The Future of Shopping. And uh, yeah, I hope everyone enjoys it. It's been absolutely delightful to have an opportunity to talk to your listeners about this subject, which I know is very close to their hearts. And uh, and I hope that anyone who wants to can get back in touch. Near and dear to their hearts, for sure. Thank you, Henry. Thanks very much indeed. You've been listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. If you would like to be considered as a guest on our show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. For sponsorship opportunities, send us an email at media at rethink.industries. You can help support our team at Rethink Retail by dropping us a rating and review on your iTunes podcast app. To each and every one of you, thanks so much for tuning in. Retail never sleeps. See you next week.